This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Benton, Caleb J., Sam VR, Emerson, and Joanna. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Benton. Benton asks, when is it taking something too far and it becomes an idol? What are some signs to notice that it's happening? Well, Benton, the Bible condemns literal idolatry, worshiping idols like they did with the golden calf or in the temple of Diana of the Ephesians. But it also talks about idols metaphorically, which led Calvin to describe the human heart as an idol factory. What he meant was that we were always in danger of taking some good gift that God has given us and turning it into an idol to worship. Money is an idol for a lot of people. Children can be an idol to some parents. Success, good grades, love, happiness, all these things can be idols. In Romans 1, Paul sums up idolatry as worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And I think that helps you notice when you're making an idol of something. Whenever you serve and sacrifice for something, whenever you trust in something for happiness and fulfillment, that thing is in danger of becoming an idol. And the thing false idols want you to give up is serving and sacrificing for Christ. So the things you want to watch out for are the ones that keep you from following him. If something keeps you from worship and prayer, if it keeps you from hoping in Jesus, if it keeps you from relying on him, then that's an idol and you should turn from it. And now Caleb J. wants to know, how is cursing a tree because it didn't give you food not sin? Well, Caleb, remember, Jesus didn't curse the fig tree because he was irritable from hunger and lost his temper. He did it as a warning to us. If we don't bear fruit, if we don't glorify God and enjoy him forever as he made us to do, then we're in danger of the same fate. And Jesus wasn't just warning us about bearing fruit. He was also showing us something about, you guessed it, idols. That tree had leaves on it promising fruit. But that promise was a lie. Because it didn't have fruit, it couldn't really satisfy hunger. But hungry people were still drawn to it. Idols are like that. They're things that promise to satisfy the spiritual hunger in you, to give you love and acceptance, to make you special, to grant your wishes. But all those promises are lies. Jesus was helping us see that we shouldn't look to barren trees for satisfaction because only a living tree gives life. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Sam VR. Let's give Sam a round of applause. Here's Sam's question. 
Were there other believers in God besides the Israelites? Weren't there other believers, or was Abram the first converted to God since Noah? Well, this is a wonderful question, Sam, and it requires us to understand two things about the Bible up front. First, even though the Bible is huge, 66 books worth of divine literature, there are plenty of things the Bible doesn't explain and lots of history that the Bible leaves out. That's because the purpose of the Bible isn't to tell us everything, but to tell us everything necessary for our salvation. The second thing we have to know is summed up in a theological term, progressive revelation. Revelation refers to the way God shows or reveals himself and his plan to us. And progressive refers to the idea that over time, God shows more and more. In other words, there's progress over the course of history. That's progressive revelation. As we go from Genesis to Revelation, more and more of who God is and what God's doing is made clear to us. So to sum up, the Bible doesn't tell us everything, and the truth it reveals is unfolded in stages over time. So the picture gets clearer and clearer. Now, here's why these concepts matter for your question. The Bible describes God's dealings with the human race in stages, from creation to the days of Noah and the flood, that's a stage, from the period after the flood to God's calling of Abram out of Ur to follow him, that's another stage. During the time before the flood, the Bible records two human bloodlines. The descendants of Seth make up one line, and they're described as God-fearing and faithful. There's another line, however, the descendants of Lamech, and they are just the opposite. Eventually, the line of Lamech is the one that comes to dominate, and all that's left of that line of Seth, or Noah and his family, and then there's the flood. After the flood, God establishes a covenant with Noah that marks his last dealing with the human race as a whole. After this, he will reveal himself to Abram and begin a covenant relation with a particular people, the offspring of Abraham. That's the work we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, where God's covenant people are understood to be the ethnic tribe of Israel. But even then, we see some signs of God working on a larger stage. For example, Abraham encounters the king of Salem, the high priest Melchizedek, in Genesis 14. There's a lot of mystery around the identity of Melchizedek, but we know from the author of Hebrews that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There are instances in the Old Testament, too, of people who aren't born Jews, but nevertheless are welcomed into the covenant. Rahab and Ruth, for example, both of whom become ancestors of Jesus. Uh, Uriah the Hittite is another one who comes to mind. In the New Testament, it becomes clear that salvation was never merely a question of birth, and that it has always been accomplished through justification by faith, and that even people like Abraham, who didn't know the name of Jesus, were saved by faith in the name of Jesus. How? They were trusting in God to fulfill his covenant promise, and Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. So we have firm evidence that, yes, there were believers from outside of Israel who were then incorporated into the covenant community. 
Their faith was evidence of their inclusion in God's promises. And, of course, this anticipated the inclusion of the Gentiles in the covenant that is revealed in the New Testament as the great mystery of the gospel. Just as there were people born into the nation of Israel who had no faith in God and thus were not truly Israel, there were people born to other kindreds, other nations, and other tribes who were recognized as offspring of Abraham because they shared the faith of Abraham, as Paul explains early in the book of Romans. The thing to keep in mind here, however, is that these were all people who trusted in the covenant God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to Moses as the great I Am. They didn't have as much knowledge as we do, since they didn't have God's full revelation of himself and his plan in Scripture. But they had what God revealed to them, and they trusted in him. This is important because the apostles insist, in Acts 4, for example, that there's no salvation by any other name than the name of Jesus the Messiah. So when we acknowledge that there were believers outside of the nation of Israel or even believers the Bible doesn't tell us anything about, that doesn't mean that people were saved no matter what they believed or because they believed in some other God but with sincerity or that they just had faith, no telling in what or whom. Back then, it worked the same as it does today in this regard. We can't limit God and we don't always know where he's at work or who he's working in. But the Bible does tell us how he works, and we know that people he's working in will come to faith in Jesus Christ, profess that faith, and enter into the body of Christ. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Emerson, who wants to know, what is your middle name? This is an easy one, Emerson, but I think when I answer it, you're going to have another question. Because you see, my middle name is Mark. That's right. Pastor Mark's middle name is Mark, which means he goes by his middle name and not his first name. Which makes you wonder what's wrong with his first name. At least I assume it makes you wonder. If you're wondering right now, I suppose you'll have to ask. And finally, Joanna wants to know, Do you know Latin? If only I did. Unfortunately, although I've picked up a few Latin words and phrases over the years, I do not know Latin. In fact, it was not knowing Latin that set me on a different path in life. After graduate school, I was planning to study medieval and Renaissance history in a doctoral program, but my advisor said before I started, I'd need to learn Latin. By that time, I'd studied French and German and Russian already, not to mention English, and I figured out by then that I wasn't very good at learning languages. So I didn't become a history professor. And eventually, I became a pastor and had to study Hebrew and Greek, which are a lot harder than Latin. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.